0: Welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com, a new series of podcasts about Vermont's long trail, the oldest long-distance hiking trail in the United States. We are podcasting from Camp Rough and Tumble in Facedon, Vermont, our hiking home in the Green Mountains. I'm Ruff, and my wife, who is also my hiking partner, is Tumble. Today we're in Montpelier, Vermont, and we're pleased to be talking with Mr. Brian Lindner. Brian is a historian, president of the Waterbury, Vermont Historical Society, board member of the Vermont Ski Museum, a ski instructor and patrolman for the Stowe Mountain Resort, an emergency medical technician, and founder and leader of the Waterbury, Vermont Backcountry Rescue Team. Hello, Brian, and welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here, and it sounds like a very worthy cause that you've got going.
0: Well, we hope this is helpful to hikers, and today's topic, backcountry rescue, is a very interesting one, and I'd like to start out by asking you exactly what is the backcountry in Vermont?
1: Well, the backcountry really is where a regular ambulance and ambulance crew can't get to the patient readily. In other words, they require someone to go... Find the patient, treat them remotely, and then bring them out to like a trailhead or a road crossing or an ambulance and a regular crew can then pick them up. Okay, so these locations are not
0: accessible by vehicles. This is something that is going to require physically hiking in to reach the, uh, the person needing rescue.
1: That's correct. It could be on a long trail. It could be uh, lost hikers. could be injured hunters. Uh, just anybody that's far enough back in the woods, they can't get themselves out, and a regular ambulance crew can't drive to them and pick them up. Well, Vermont has a lot of backcountry,
0: that's for sure. Now, why specifically was this team created?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. We actually created the team to relieve our local fire department of the responsibility. Because under Vermont statute, let's say someone gets injured on the summit of Camel's Hump. Statutorily, it's the fire department that has to go get them. Uh, And we've had a number of occasions where literally Waterbury was emptied of its firefighters going out to do these rescues. And over the years, the problem kept getting um, worse and worse until we reached a point where we all sat down together and said, we need a specialty team that will do this operation so that the fire department members can stay in town ready to respond to fires. The ambulance and ambulance crews could stay in town ready to respond to incidents. The backcountry team, in the meantime, would go out and do the recovery, do the treatment, and bring the patient to the trailhead, and then the ambulance would come pick them up. Now that you built the
0: backcountry rescue team, was it a difficult process to form a team like this? Because I presume this is mostly volunteers.
1: It was somewhat difficult, mostly due to my own inexperience. In the early days, anybody that came forward and said, I'm an experienced hiker and I want to be on the team, um, we let them on the team. And it took literally a couple of years to figure out Uh, I'm not just looking for hikers. I'm looking for people that will actually respond when the call comes in. I'm looking for people that will go to training, will go to the meetings. It's much more of a more dedicated duty than you would think of, well, I'm just a great hiker, so I want to participate. So that was the most difficult part of forming the team, was to really get it to a core of people we could rely on that were well-trained, well-motivated. Okay,
0: so these folks have really made a commitment to this team in this kind of an effort.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And we expect, and we have 25 members, and we expect on any rescue that at least 15 should turn out. Uh, And if you missed uh, more than two or three, then you're going to get a call or a conversation with myself.
0: Okay. That would lead to the next area is specific training. What type of training is needed to be a member of this team, and do you have ongoing programs based on the experience that you gather?
1: We don't actually have any any minimum standards. Uh, it's basically done the, through an interview process, what's your past experience, etc. However, Waterbury, we are heavily EMT-oriented, and we we probably have more EMTs than most teams have. We're primarily a medical team, so that when we respond, we're taking EMT experience into the woods. Ropes training, that sort of thing, is in addition to that. And I should say, we don't at Waterbury, we are what's known as a low-angle rescue team. On one of our rescues, if you fall, you're going to get bruised. We are not a high-angle team. A high-angle team is if you fall, you're going to break a bone or die. And if we ever have a high-angle situation, we would call for assistance from those that are far more qualified, such as Colchester Technical Rescue
0: or Stowe Mountain Rescue. Okay, so you work with other mountain rescue teams depending on the situation or the severity of the the injury?
1: Very much so. Um, the teams in Vermont are all organized. The state police has a quarterly meeting that all of the recognized teams attend to share information, share training. But, yeah, everybody's very much mutual aid-oriented.
0: How do you communicate with your team?
1: Email is our number one method of, of, of contacting the team, keeping them updated. It's our number one primary source of communication for all purposes, except for emergencies. And in an emergency situation, those members of the fire department and ambulance squad will receive the notification via their portable radio, Uh, Other than that, we have a a rather incredible system called the One Call Now, where we dial one phone number, we record the message, like this is the emergency, this is where we want you to go, etc., and that system then automatically dials every member's home phone, cell phone, and work phone and leaves that message. And that's how we get the communication out when we actually have a rescue.
0: And then when you're actually out on a rescue, do you have radio communication, or is it mostly just in
1: sight, voice? In our territory in Waterbury, we are in radio contact with Capital West Dispatch in Montpelier, so the information flows freely back and forth. So, yeah, we're in very definite radio contact at all times. Okay, and when you say all times, I'm
0: assuming this is a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week, 365 days a year. Operation.
1: Absolutely. It's, it, in fact, the vast bulk of our calls last year, I think we had 11 calls last year. Nine of them came in around 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon or later, which is a problem for our rescue teams because we've all been at work all day. Most of us have had our radios turned on all day. Your cell phone's been turned on all day. So when the call comes in in the the evening, everything that you've got is tired. Your batteries are low. You're tired from being at work all day. But nonetheless, that's when we have to respond, right? So if the majority of these calls
0: came in around 5 or 6 p.m., we're talking darkness. And that can be a challenge in itself. So could you... Tell us about some of the most challenging rescues that you've had over the past few years on the trail.
1: Yeah, the most challenging ones are definitely the uh, the ones that come in at night or have to proceed at night because everybody has to work with headlamps. Uh, We had one that went for, I believe it was either 17 or 18 hours where all the rescuers spent the entire night trying to move the patient to a trailhead. Last year, we had one where the patient's location wasn't even clear. So we literally had to find the patient first and then get her out of the woods. And those rescues easily take 10 to 12 hours.
0: So a a typical scenario would be a call comes in to you or um, the fire department, and then you would put out the message to say we need to gather the team. You would probably have to determine a location to meet, and then how would you proceed?
1: Well, the calls normally come in through 911, although we've had some that have come through very bizarre methods. People calling their brother-in-law in a, out of state, who then called a friend, who called a friend, who called the local police, who then called 911. But 911 is, is normally the way that we get tone. once we do get the tone uh, then yes through the one call now system we send a message to every team member telling them exactly where we want them to go and as much of the details about the rescue as we know up to that point
0: now how do you determine the location if the information you have is vague i'm on the south slope of camel sump for instance
1: Well, we had exactly that scenario play out last year, and it's fairly typical. We were getting messages that the patient was south of Camel's Hump on the Long Trail, and we got messages that they were down from Camel's Hump on the Long Trail. Now, south makes it fairly clear. Down could be the north side or the south side. And in that particular instance, I stuck my neck out and just took a guess that would be the south side and it turned out that's where she was but and, and this is fairly typical the initial call the amount of information the quality of information is usually pretty poor okay so
0: uh... we're going to talk about things that would be more useful to a rescue team from the injured person or from the the party with the injured person and i imagine well i can see now how useful that is and It's trying to get to that person as quickly as possible.
1: What we've encountered in the past is people will call 911 and then turn their cell phone off to conserve the battery, leaving us no way to call them back and say the directions don't make any sense. Can you tell us exactly where you are? That's been very, very frustrating. We had one case where the caller called 911 left very good information but not enough. And when we went to call them back, we found out we had to have a private access code in order to make their cell phone even ring, which was very frustrating. So what people should do is, is call 911 if they can reach them on their cell phone, uh, leave a complete detailed message with as much information as the dispatcher wants or needs, but then leave your cell phone on so that we can call you if we need additional information or additional clarification. For example, is the patient taking medications. Did they take their medications? That can be key to uh, to treatment that's going to be administered once we get on scene. Are there
0: some guidelines um, for someone who's not well-trained in first aid uh, to determine when they should actually make a call? I mean, should you be uh, on the safe side and always call if you have any doubts, or is it something that's not that clear?
1: Well, it can be muddy, but generally, w- whatever appears to be reasonable and prudent, if, if you think you've got a problem, call 911. Get the teams in motion, because you can always call them back and stop them. But get them going at the earliest possible moment. And it's you, you just have to think, what is reasonable? Uh, I've, I've got a cut in my finger. I'm not going to call 911. I've got what could be a broken or a sprained ankle. That person's immobile. You need to call. So... It can vary, but in in general, call, get the teams moving, and then if it has to change, it can
0: change later. So use common sense, but never take a risk unnecessarily because you don't want the hassle of of bringing in a rescue team.
1: That's absolutely right. And, And the one thing we don't want people to do is delay and delay and delay and delay until things are so horribly bad that now we're encountering a big mess. Now we've got a huge problem it's much better to call early than to wait until the problem is so bad that you absolutely need help at that point.
0: Brian, how long does a rescue typically take compared to normal hike times?
1: I would say, on average, a rescue will take four, five, six times the time that it would normally take to do the hike. Our typical rescues run for many hours. I'd say, on average, it's somewhere between six and 12 hours to do a rescue from the time the call comes in until the patient is delivered to an ambulance. First of all, we have to get called out. We have to go get our gear. We have to get to the trailhead. We have to hike the mountain. So you're already one, two, three hours into it at that point, and then we've got to send to wherever the patient is. And that doesn't
0: include figuring out where this patient is also?
1: Usually we're doing that in the middle of all of this. We're on cell phones and on radios all trying to figure out, in some cases, where is the patient because we don't know. What other type of equipment do you carry? We take full first aid packs. We can splint uh, fractured limbs. We take ice packs, chemical ice packs, chemical hot packs. Pretty much anything that EMT would generally respond to as a first responder in the valley will take up on the mountain also. We don't take things like oxygen because what are you going to do when your 20-pound oxygen tank runs out and you've got six more hours of rescue to go? some cases, we do have a physician that responds with us, and he actually will bring pain medications and administer those in the field to the patient, which makes their ride out much more comfortable, but that's the exception, not the rule.
0: What is involved in extracting a patient from the backcountry? Well, the first
1: thing is, in general, we shoot to get 20 to 25 rescuers. That's our minimum. You can do it with less, but it's very difficult. And the fewer you have, the longer it takes. And just by way of background on that, we had a rescue on Hunger Mountain a couple years ago. Myself and another EMT first responded. We reached the patient probably two and a half to three hours after she had called, and she looked at us and said, where's your stretcher? And we said, well, ma'am, that's coming behind us for the next team. And she was astounded. She, she said, you mean isn't just the two of you going to carry me down? And that's a common misconception. So we need 20 to 25 people, and then we need what's known as a Stokes litter, which is a fiberglass stretcher, essentially, or, or a gurney. The patient goes into that. And then that attaches then to a framework that has a very large rubber wheel on it, like a giant wheelbarrow wheel. And that's underneath the patient, and essentially you have three people on the left, three people on the right, one person following that's tied to the gurney, and you walk them down or roll them down the mountain. The problem there being is the wheel goes down the trail. The rescuers have to walk in the side because they can't get their feet into the trail, and that's one of the reasons it takes so long. Very often, or most often on these trails, we reach places where you have to actually do rope belays to lower them because the trail is so steep, you have to have a more efficient braking system. So we'll set up a belay and actually lower the uh, gurney with the wheel on it and the patient in it down over the steeper sections. Have you ever had to orchestrate an airlift
0: uh, directly from the scene of the accident?
1: Uh, we have not in Waterbury. Uh, there was one on Camel's Hump back in the 1960s or 70s where the uh, Army National Guard lifted a patient off the ground. But in general, we do not have that capability in Vermont. That's kind of a misconception. Helicopter rescues in Vermont are very difficult to get, very difficult to organize mm-hmm. in the backcountry. Now, if you got a patient at a parking lot, for example, different ballgame. What you see on TV with people being lifted out of remote areas by helicopter, for all intents and purposes, does not exist in Vermont. For the uh, Vermont Army National Guard to get one of their choppers up into the air can be two, three, four hours, if it's even available or if a crew is even available. Because in Vermont, helicopters, crews do not sit by waiting for the call to come in. They have to be called out, get to the aircraft, and get get airborne. Okay, now that brings up, The next concern, is there a cost involved
0: to the rescued person?
1: It depends on which team is doing the rescue. Some teams uh, absolutely do not charge. Uh, They are of the philosophy that if you do charge, people then will wait until the, the problem is so horrific that they have no choice. Other teams do charge a reasonable amount because they have costs that they have to cover for themselves, vehicles, equipment, etc. So it varies, but in general, they certainly, in the history of Vermont, they have not proved to be unreasonable. As
0: a hiker or as a person considering an outing in the backcountry, whether it's only for a day or it's a couple of days, um, what would you say are the things that they ought to keep in mind before they set foot on the trail?
1: Well, in in my book, the the number one thing is adequate footwear. If you don't have adequate footwear, don't go into the woods. And then beyond that, it really gets into common sense. Does it look like it's going to be stormy weather? Does it look like it's going to rain? Do you have enough fluids and water? In an emergency, can you spend the night because it's going to be several hours before any rescuer gets to you? It really boils down to common sense. I guess my own rule of thumb and the rule of thumb that we operate under at Waterbury Backcountry Rescue is no matter what the weather is, you have to be prepared to spend the night. You may not be comfortable with your gear, but you will at least survive to talk about it the next day. Uh, so when we go on rescues, when it's 95 degrees out, we are all prepared to spend that night in the woods if we have to.
0: Do you find... Or have you found instances where people are just totally unprepared and they had a a misconception about what was uh, the kind of conditions they would encounter?
1: We encounter that with great regularity. People that uh, are in flip-flops, that left the base of the mountain in late afternoon, early evening, with no flashlights, no fluids, no food, cotton T-shirts and cotton shorts, and feeling secure because they have their cell phone. So that that is a very definite problem, and that is a huge percentage of our rescuers are those folks.
0: Mentioning cell phone, uh, I know from my experience and Tumble's experience, we don't always uh, find ourselves in range of a cell phone signal. What would be the procedure in that case? Let's assume there are two individuals and one is injured on the trail. What would you do?
1: Well, first of all, the rule should be that you always hike in threes. So that the injured person is obviously down, one person stays with them, and the third then goes for help uh, if you don't have cell phone. If there's just two of you, my recommendation is to always carry a notepad and something you can write with and write down exactly what the problem is and start handing them out to every hiker that comes through and asking them to get to a telephone. In the meantime, you stay with your partner because you know what's happened, and you can provide that information to the rescuers when they arrive on scene. If all of that fails, then at some point you may have to leave your partner and go get help yourself. And I haven't encountered that, or we haven't encountered that, but I'm sure at some point it's going to play out. Okay, so
0: rule number one, depending on the size of the party, have someone stay with the victim. However, you could get extreme enough that you would have to go for help if if no one came along.
1: That's correct. And we've actually had cases in Vermont where there were two hikers, and the healthy one came out to get help, and then they couldn't find the patient because he he or she couldn't remember where they were. Do you feel that the signage... At the trailheads
0: and the kind of information that you find, for instance, in the long trail guide uh, or could obtain at the Green Mountain Club, is it adequate enough in this area or could there be some um, additional information provided right at the beginning of hikes?
1: Well, you could always have more signage, but then it comes down to a matter of practicality and expense. Uh, I think the Green Mountain Club has done an amazing job with getting up as much signage as they have. Would we like to see more? Certainly, but someone's going to have to pay for it, which might make, a you know, if someone wants to donate money to the Green Mountain Club, they could say, hey, a sign needs to be placed here, uh, and I would fund it for you. Uh, But in general, I think they've done a very good job throughout the whole state.
0: And also there are
1: caretakers
0: posted at various places along the trail.
1: That's correct. And we found uh, last year, for example, the crew that was on Camel's Hump was exceptionally helpful. We'd still be up there, I think, doing some rescues if it hadn't been for their assistance. They are very well trained, very well dedicated, and an absolute asset to the Long Trail and the Green Mountain Club to have them up there. They're an absolute wealth of knowledge, and they, for example, they will know which areas of the mountain do and don't have cell phone coverage. Just for rescue purposes, that's come in very handy. A person planning a hike, and
0: which would include, say, young children or teenagers or even seniors, are there any special considerations that you would advise people to keep in mind before setting out?
1: Just good common sense. Um, We have encountered some circumstances where uh, young parents had children that they were forcing to hike and the kids were crying and upset and our recommendation obviously and that is stop, don't force the kid to do it because you're just asking for trouble and you're turning the kid off to future hiking. As far as seniors go we see a lot of them out hiking and for the most part I'd say they're pretty well thought out and well equipped and I don't see that as an issue. I hope to be doing it when I'm a lot more senior than I am today.
0: Okay, now we do encounter some groups, mostly young people who are out without hats or without any water, certainly not with hiking poles and they're tending to leap down rocks and, you know, it's a good time for them.
1: I was there, I did it myself at one time, but then I grew up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, everybody needs to be prepared, and I think the the bottom line rule is you have to be prepared to spend the night, even if you're not going to be comfortable. You know, Have matches, have flashlights, have fluids, have warm, dry clothing, some form of shelter, uh, just good common sense. But yeah, as far as the kids bouncing up and down the rocks, it's going to happen, it's always happened, and I don't see that changing. Have you always been successful with the rescues? I think in all cases uh, that we've been on, it's been a very successful rescue. There's always problems. There's always complications. But the more you do these, the more you get used to them, uh, and the the new wrinkles are easier to figure out. But in all circumstances, yeah, we've brought patients out to have made full recoveries.
0: Well, Brian, you've provided us with a wealth of information about what your team does and some things to keep in mind in the backcountry, and uh, I do appreciate that. It's really been great chatting with you. Um, I usually end podcasts by saying things like, we hope to see you on the trail, uh, and in your case, I'll add, only if absolutely necessary. So thanks very much. Well, I'm
1: glad to do it, and uh, I do a lot of pleasure hiking, so I do hope to see you out there. Okay, that would be a good time. Thanks again.
0: This has been a presentation of longtrailpodcast.com. We hope you will return and enjoy future podcasts about Vermont's long trail. Until then, this is Ruff of Rough and Tumble, Long Trail End-to-End 2003.